This episode is sponsored by One World Filter, or OWF. OWF is a disruptive technology that will enable access to clean drinking water for household, commercial, humanitarian, disaster relief, governmental, and municipal applications. OWF covers the complete spectrum of threats to humans. It intercepts all bacteria, viruses, parasites, metals, sediment, microplastics, pesticides, herbicides, pharmaceuticals, growth hormones, man-made chemicals, and COVID-19. OWF produces both the safest and lowest-cost drinking water on the planet. To learn more, visit OneWorldFilter.com. On this episode, we have Ellie Rubin. Ellie began her career in the arts and migrated to the management of artistic and creative assets before converting her agency into a software company, a shift that coincided with her move to Silicon Valley, where she worked for a number of technology and media companies, including Apple and Sony. After selling her business, she launched a series of interviews and authored two books. Ellie is a cancer survivor. She has recently relaunched her interview series called Ellie Conversations. Ellie, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm delighted to be here. That's so great to have you. You have spoken so eloquently in your career about the power of story. So you understand how meaningful this is and really what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast. So, you know, just uh, it's phenomenal to have you given your orientation and your perspective and appreciation for that. It's also, uh, it also represents a significant challenge for me because you have accomplished so much in your career. Uh, I really don't know how I'm going to condense this into a 30-minute segment. But, uh, <laughs> that's wow, my... well, thank you for the compliment. But let's just say from one storyteller to another, uh, so fun to be here and such an important time to have all of us exchange stories to, to provide some perspective to everyone. That's brilliantly put. And um, thank you for, for sharing it and framing it that way. That's great. So, Ellie, you were born in Canada um, near Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. Okay, great. Um, is Ellie short for a longer name? Ellen it or Ellen? Is. Okay. Ellie is short for Elizabeth. Oh, and, um, yes, I, and, and what we found out, which is really interesting because I couldn't be further from this character. My mom, I was the fifth child, the youngest, and my mom always wanted to have a girl named Beth after Beth in little women. Oh. <laughs> and then she had me and somehow I was never called Beth for more than like three days. And then it just went to Ellie. So Amazing. I have never really been called Elizabeth or Beth. Wow. And uh, they did a remake of Little Women very it recently. Did, which was beautiful. I loved it. Good time. Yeah, it was well done. It was nice to see that with my uh, now 14-year-old daughter. Uh, she was 13. Um, your parents were uh, in the arts? No, not at all. Um, my, uh, I was pretty well, our, the kids in my family were really first generation Canadians. My dad immigrated from Poland when he was a little boy in the 20s, wow. uh, got out just in time. The rest of his family really didn't. Right. And my mom was the youngest of seven um, who had also come from Russia, um, but was born in Winnipeg. Um, so they were both from uh, immigrant families, pretty well came from nothing. 
Um, and my dad was a, a very substantial real estate entrepreneur. And my mom ended up getting her PhD very late in life in um, psycho in psychology. Wow. Okay. Excellent. Um, when did your love of music start? And I say that looking at the guitars you have behind you and the saxophone as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, it, 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 and in keeping with the story of my parents, they wanted us to have everything they never had. I finally, after maybe 12, 13 different piano teachers, I found one that motivated me. Amazing. And it it was like a light went on, and I went from being this crabby piano player who had no talent to absolutely blossoming and loving classical piano um and it reminds me how important that is no matter what you try and learn if you have a champion there's nothing like it yeah so true and kudos for uh going through 12 or 13 and kudos to your parents to uh mostly my parents That's extraordinary. Now, you have a share about being lost on a hike for 16 hours. Um, Did this happen in your youth? It happened in my first year or second year of university at McGill. Yes. Which is uh, a very prestigious uh, university that you attended. So kudos on that. So uh, obviously uh, you're here with us, so you survived that 16 hours of being lost, but there was a, it was a teachable moment that you shared about and wondering if you could uh, describe that here. At the time, it was pretty life-threatening, I feel. I was just like, whatever, I can hike. Of course, was way over my head and um, ended up in, in the top group because who else wants, who wants to be in the lowest group? I just chose the top group and everyone was serious mountain climbers. And we went down to Vermont and literally the first day we climbed, I think about 12 hours. And uh, despite how good shape I was in, I, li- I barely made it. And the next day they, they decided to let me go off on my own and get sort of sandwiched between the two groups, which is mm. of course something you should never do. Yeah. I won't go into all the details, but I was alone for 16 hours. And um, the one thing that I came out of that with is, in a funny way, I hate to relate everything to entrepreneuring, but there are no rules when you're surviving. It's not like, what do you do now? Or what should I do now? Uh, There's no one to ask. There's no one around. And It's that ability to tap into whatever, fear, um, um, tenacity, panic, whatever it is. And it was that realization that there's no one who's going to do this but me. Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, and I love your use of entrepreneur as a verb there, which we will get more into um, in just a little bit. Um, Being an entrepreneur or entrepreneuring never comes with a manual. Right, right. Uh, I guess that's something that it instantly attracted me to it. Mm. Um, and I do believe that some people are more entrepreneurial than others. It doesn't mean that you can't become an entrepreneur if that's your dream. But I think some of us have it in our DNA. Well, and I love how as you, you know, uh, post-release of Bulldog and so forth, which we'll get into, you talk about you don't have to necessarily start a company to be to entrepreneur 
you can entrepreneur in a corporation or in a, a more structured setting. Yeah. Um, but just to round out your experience at McGill, you uh, studied theater and English. And um, I have to ask, who was your favorite author, either prose or, or, or playwright? Uh, so first of all, I'm just going to backtrack for a sec and tell you that for the first year, my dad thought that I was an economics major because that's what he told me I had to be. Okay. And uh, <laughs> within the first term, I realized it was never going to happen. But I knew if I told him I was going into English and theater, it wasn't going to go over too well. So, um, so that was an interesting start. Um, but my favorite author by far was Faulkner. Uh, and I took uh, a couple of courses. I think I've read every single Faulkner book there is. Mm. And favorite work? Pardon? What was your favorite work of Faulkner's? Um, as I Lay Dying, uh, yeah. but I think maybe that's because it was the first one. So from there, you transitioned to, into a number of different roles, um, uh, accounts management, uh, public relations. Um, you had an experience as an arts coordinator at Toronto Arts Council. And just hearing you describe that in other interviews, it felt like you really learned advocacy and, and, and sales a little bit during that experience. Well, it's interesting. Um, I definitely, when I, many years later, when I wrote my books and started getting into speaking, I always told everyone the best thing you can do is out of university, whether you take theater and English or something else, you got to learn how to write, you have to learn how to get up on stage, and you have to learn to entice people into whatever idea, product, service you're talking about. These various experiences laid the groundwork that um, brought you to this media asset management company, which you called Bulldog Group. And, um, you know, Bulldog conjures a certain um, series of adjectives, but I wanted to ask, what does it mean for you? And I'm going to acknowledge that I'm seeing a punching bag, boxing <laughs> punching bag behind you as I ask this question. I have to say that my daughter, one of my daughters and my husband is a lot better at that sport than I am. I just want to take that back a, a few steps if I can. Absolutely. I got to Toronto Arts Council um, and I love the story because Rita Davies was my very first boss out of college. I was making $13,000 on a grant and I only got it through like, you know, basically she already hired for the position and I sold myself into the program and said, if I can get them to give you a second grant, Mm. Would you take me on? And of course, the rules were one grant per organization. That was it. And um, I think that's when I learned salesmanship or saleswomanship, because I went back to the person in charge and I explained why this was essential for me to have. Amazing. And she agreed to give us uh, another grant. And that was the beginning, as you said, of advocacy. When we finally did our own company, it actually started as a marketing and advertising agency. Right. Um, we, um, my husband, partner, and our third partner, the three of us all came from the advertising marketing world and decided let's do our own. Our feeling was that we just wanted to be a brand that would be fun and iconic and unforgettable. And that's how we came up with the name Bulldog. The attributes were secondary, <laughs> to be honest, at the time. I love that. Fantastic. <laughs>
And when we ended up moving down to Silicon Valley, when we turned into a software company, all of our merchandise was to do with dogs. So we had dog tags and leashes and (laughs) dog tattoos. And well, please share Ellie that story because it's a great story of, um, you know, the, the drive from Toronto to Cupertino to, morph your business into a software company. So when we started this agency, um, we were doing typical marketing and advertising, but the only difference was uh, my partners were very technologically advanced. And so we basically would create all our artboards and all our um, um, layouts for our magazines and annual reports. I mean, in those days, everything was paper and we would do it on our computers. And, but the idea was always to find a way to move from the service business into the product business. And what we found was in our own studio, um, we were finding it difficult to manage media files. If you didn't have the right one, you could really lose a lot of time and money um, by printing the wrong cover, literally on an annual report. And that's when we started to think about managing all the complex media assets. So anything that wasn't a document in a system that major um, companies like Disney, all the broadcasters, all the publishers, all the big marketing companies could use to keep their uh, version control in line. As people got to know the internet, wanted to have websites, wanted to have lots of assets that right. were complex media, it became a huge business. How does a marketing design firm get on the radar of a company like Apple? We decided that uh, we would create our own. We would create our own OEM because we were buying so many computers for our own agency, right. and then all of our clients wanted us to buy them for them. And in the end, our OEM was selling more uh, Apple computers than almost anyone. And so that's how we got on their radar. And that's when they called us and they said, we are looking for people to evangelize visual computing. And uh, they started working with us with Northern Telecom and Kodak and basically called me one day and said, um, we have 10 spots at infinity, one infinity loop for 10 companies around the world that we think are ambassadors for visual computing. And we think you guys should be one of them. So you have three days to decide. Uh, And if not, we've got a hundred companies who'll take the spot. And I got in my hatchback threw as many clothes as I could into the hatchback and drove across the continent um, and crossed and went to Silicon Valley. I had never been there in my life. Um, but eventually we ended up selling the company um, to Documentum, who was then bought by EMC. Yeah. yeah. And were able to take a sabbatical. And so between um, 2000 and 2003, actually longer, 2006, uh, we took a sabbatical and had a couple of kids. <laughs> so, so we moved That's a great thing to, to do Toronto. on sabbatical. <laughs> no, it was amazing. I mean, Chris to this day is like, I am a father who spent more hours with my babies than anyone I know. Yeah. Um, and we just gave ourselves the time and there was none of the rush of work and deadlines. And yeah. it was really, a, you know, it had a cottage and it was, it, we, we planned it. No, uh, no. And then it was like, we woke up and we're like, okay, now we have to go back to work. 
<laughs> <laughs> the fairy tale's over. I want to chat about this uh, lecture you're giving in Sweden. Oh, and, yes. Um, people <laughs> approach you afterwards and say, well, where can I get the book? And you're like, aha. We did this um, very large uh, setup. I think it was 800 people in the capital in Sweden. And I was flying in the night before and um, putting my rudimentary PowerPoint, believe me, PowerPoint in those days was yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> and I wasn't very good at it. And I just thought I got to do something. I was just bored of my own slides. And so at the end, I just put up a slide that said, entrepreneuring is a verb. Nice. And I did my presentation. And at the end of it, one of the, there were all these questions in this young man stood up and he said, and it was this huge auditorium, so I couldn't even see him. And he said, um, so at first I didn't understand, I thought I didn't understand your English properly, but now I understand that you're saying it's a verb that you choose and I wanna know when you're gonna write the book. I just said, actually, I've already started. Brilliant. And it was really at that moment, I felt it was, important for me to capture my ideas and my thinking and give them to others. That's great. Was that the first time you had publicly used this idea of entrepreneuring yeah. as a verb? Yeah. It's not about you're either in a category called entrepreneur or out. It's about you choosing to take the best attributes and the best mindset of an entrepreneur and apply it however you want. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, um, you were ahead of your time because, um, uh, you know, your, your book is based on these like case studies or these descriptions of people. And, and of course, this is before the era of the Malcolm Gladwell books and the right. Adam Grant <laughs> books, which, you know, that's their uh, format. And uh, so I, you know, tracing it, it's like it, it comes to you. You popularized that. Well, uh, let's just say it was, it was um, one of the hardest things I've ever done, writing the first book. The second one was easier, but I only think I did it. I had more to say, and I also wanted to make sure I could do it better than the first time. Gotcha. Um, and honestly, I always say to people that it's easier for me to raise millions of dollars than to write a book for wow. me. Wow, um, okay. But I mean, thank you for the compliment. I think for me, it was the only way I knew how to write a book is I've always been someone who goes out and talks to people. Well, in your second book, which you talked about was called Ambition, and it was based off of this syndicated column you had in Chicago Tribune and National Post. And um, I'm just looking at my dates here. That book came out in 2004. So you were yeah. doing this on your sabbatical. I was, but that was not a plan. <laughs> <laughs> The, I'll tell you the truth is, is that, and you know, this is where these days, you know, it's better to explain how human you are than try and be a superhuman. So I had a little baby, I was speaking all over the world. So I mean, I wasn't not working, but I wasn't like, working 80 hours a week. I think it's just fascinating that share that you gave that um, it's easier for you to raise $100 million than it is to write a book. I mean, is that because you just are so uh, personable and you like that interpersonal dynamic, you'd rather be face-to-face -face with someone than be uh, holed up and uh, put something together on your own that then gets disseminated to the public. 
I love the way you said that. So I'm going to, I'm going to just keep those words, but definitely personality type. Mm. I think I'm a pretty good writer, but I don't think it's my favorite thing to do. The journey is so painful for me to be alone all the time. Well, I'd also say you're a master of feedback. And this is what really makes you such a great interviewer. And I think this is what made you an extraordinary saleswoman because you could craft a story and you could appeal to somebody in that moment, in that interaction, and really modify and on the fly switch your pitch so that you could close. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think business development and content, those two things, but those are my favorite things. Mm. I, I love the process of finding a way to entice people. Share with us about teaching at Stanford and how that came about. So uh, once again, uh, I guess, you know, network to me, and I, I don't like the word network, but just people to me, that, that is what I loved, love doing and having. There's a perfect way to bring it into the conversation because I was going to share, say this at the end, but one of my favorite comments is this notion of circles of coincidence and purposeful collision. Yes. That is, I love. Okay. So um, thank I'm you. never forgetting that. Thank you. I love that too. Actually, I only love a few things I've written, but that's <laughs> one of them. In the end, you still have to have a person and a relationship that's based on trust and relevance. I always thought what everyone has their little magic, magical touch. And I realized if you think of people in circles and think of coincidences as just points in time, then your job as someone who's an expert business development person, networker, whatever you want to call it, is to find ways to collide with those people with purpose, uh, with empathy, uh, with respect. But that's what you do. And that's really what a good system should be doing for you. And that's exactly what happened in every job I've ever done. Any business development deal that was important, all circles of coincidence. And one of the women I met, we moved there and I was brand new and I met a woman and um, who was, I knew her through the school and she just said, you know, you should just teach at Stanford. Mm. And I was like, Hmm. I wonder how I would do that. (laughs) I just arrived here like three months ago and she introduced me to someone and I actually asked instead to teach adult education. Um, I realized that what I, again, not what every, everyone would want to maybe be more mainstream, but I just thought, I don't think I have the patience for younger people right now. (laughs) I think I need adults who have had lots of experience in work and are now looking to become more entrepreneurial. It was fantastic, but it was also a learning experience. Mm. And what I learned is um, I'm not really a teacher. Hmm. I'm a motivator, 100%. I'm a performer. I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm a leader to some degree. And although I think I did a pretty good job, I got good, good responses. I learned after a few years that I think I need to move on and do other things that were more aligned with my personality. Right, right. Well, that makes sense. Well, during this period, you were doing uh, a number of interviews. I mean, well over 300. 
And so clearly (laughs) an activity that was more aligned with your personality. I'd love to ask you, um, Ellie, what were some of the more memorable interviews that you conducted? Um, So many. After I wrote my books, I got quite involved in doing TV work, Mm. mostly because it was so easy for me compared to writing a book. I was just no script, talking on camera. (laughs) It was just very, very, it felt very familiar and and very easy for me. And so what I ended up doing is working with different conferences and different organizations and would set up my studio and then interview like 30 people in two days because they had all these amazing speakers and guests. And, you know, and of course, everyone always said, no one's good. No, no, no. They're too important. They're too busy. And I just said, listen, I've been a marketer for a long time. I promise you they're going to want to be on camera. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of them, I couldn't even get them out of the studio. I'm like, I got my next appointment. Um, so Cory Booker, awesome. stop talking. You're done. <laughs> exactly. Um, I loved my interview with Jim Breyer uh, mm. from Excel Partners. And yeah. this is going back. Um, he had, this was right after Facebook. Um, he was so ahead of his time. And we were doing a conference at the Ritz Carlton and Half Moon Bay and the waves were crashing in the background. <laughs> and I just said, if, if you wanted to tell me what I should look for for the future, like where are the next intersections coming? And I remember him just saying media and mobile. And, you know, and he said it so specifically and, of course, you know, dead on. Um, And then he just said, anyone who is looking that far ahead already knows that those two are going to collide. So look for the simplest, most elegant solution of that, not the complexity involved in it. Mm. And that really became a huge trend for many, many years after that. So that was really cool. Um, I'd say my interview with Toby Lutka, the CEO and founder of Shopify, um, I had the pleasure of interviewing him when he opened his office in San Francisco. So this is going back a couple of years. And uh, I asked him about the moment he became an entrepreneur. Oh, what a great question. And he was so eloquent and he literally, I have a copy of it. I can send you the link. Of all of these, I have copies. I and he, he literally said, I rem, you know, in his beautifully understated way, he's like, I remember the day. I remember what I ate that day. I remember the clothes I was wearing. <laughs> I remember everything about that day. And he describes going from selling a snowboard, which was how he started, to realizing he could sell a whole idea so that other people could sm- could sell their versions of a snowboard. Mm. And, uh, you know, moments like that are just, you just, you know, you're connecting with the person, yeah. you know, we're having a conversation. I love that. Ellie, you're also a cancer survivor. I am. I, let me think, I got breast cancer in 2011. Okay. Can you share with us about that, how that yeah. was? And- um, went in for my mammogram, 
Mm. was on the phone with my best friend. I said, oh, I got to go. I'm late. And she and I never forgot that. I had to go in for a biopsy right away. And then I came out of the biopsy and it's like, it was just this, you know, the sliding door, right? You're suddenly, the door is slid open and you're looking at this other side of it. And you're like, I don't even know where to start. Mm. And uh, I was extremely lucky because it was super early and I didn't have to do chemo or radiation or anything. Um, But the decision-making as to what you're going to do was excruciating. I was very methodical. Once I got my brain and my heart around this, I had a process. And just like circles of coincidence in business, I did the exact same thing for, Mm -hmm. for research for breast cancer. I talked to only people that were referred to me personally. And I think that's very important because you can also get too much information and you can go too wide in your research. I didn't read anything online, nothing. I let my husband do all of that. He was the, the research guy. I just made a decision like, let's just get rid of the whole thing. It's early. I don't have to do anything else. Well, yeah. uh, Unfortunately, I've had a few friends who have gone through this and they describe that decision matrix in just the same way. Yeah. And so, uh, well, you've migrated back to Canada and Vancouver is now home. Yes. When did that transition happen? Uh, About two years ago. Okay. Um, And so we had a fantastic run till about um, a couple of years ago, things just started to change. Like we don't need this anymore. We've done this for so long. I don't need to be on this, in this pressure cooker and in this Mm. uh, sort of frenetic feeling all the time. It's just not where I'm at right now. So that was one thing. Um, And then the second thing, um, I'm sure people won't be happy with me saying this, but there was an enormous suicide, teen suicide issue in Palo Alto. That really started to scare us because we felt like, what is this? And nobody could figure out, was it stress? Was it pressure? Was it, you know, every, and it was going across genders and all kinds of backgrounds and everything. Um, And now you spend your time uh, as an angel investor and you've also relaunched LE Conversations. Tell us about the impetus behind that. So uh, I was doing a number of series. I actually did a um, video series for Technorati when -hmm. I was down in the Silicon Valley. And then I did a whole series for C100 and Citrix. And a lot of the accelerators I worked at and ran programs for, I actually did a lot of these kind of um, video thought leadership interviews and series. And we, uh, together with my production team, I have a great team up here, we had slated the fall to reboot my series because I was doing a lot of stuff. I was feeling very busy and I didn't want to do it over the summer. And literally we made that decision in December. (laughs) And so it was sort of on the shelf. We had everything ready to go. And then COVID-19 hit and, you know, I was inundated with calls from people and, and startups and, and careerists and, corporate people and just everyone just really uh, calls of help and, and perspective. 
and I just thought I'm I'm at the stage in my life and I'm at the age where I feel it's 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 a responsibility to try and talk to people and give them perspective and bring them some of the network that I have. And so literally we started a couple of weeks ago, uh, completely not ready. You know, I'm someone who likes to have the brand done and we just thought, let's just go for it. I did want to start the reboot of LA Conversations uh, with someone like Lorna Davis, because I listened to her TED talk and just the notion of saying that we are interdependent, not having the choice, we are interdependent and leaders who have to stop being heroes because heroes is not inclusive at all. It's so much of the reset that I think the whole world needs to do. We have a new platform if we're going to be using um, that allows the audience to do crowdsourced um, polling. It's great that you're going to have the thought leadership in that regard. Uh, I think your your site and your conversations are going to do exceptionally well. I will certainly direct everyone I can uh, towards that would be them. Awesome, <laughs> team! It's been great to be with you virtually. Uh, I hope one day we're going to meet in person. I will make it a point. I shall okay. uh, make the pilgrimage to Vancouver. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar Eight at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.